All right. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you today. My name is Paul. I'm the lead pastor here. And man, what a great morning it's been. And uh, I know uh, that you weren't able to see the families uh, physically on stage. I know Leah showed a picture there. We had a great first service commissioning so many families. And as Steve mentioned, it really has been a great morning of worship too. And uh, so it's so fun. Uh, thanks for worshiping with us today, whether you call Genesis your church or uh, if you're here for the first time. Last week, uh, we talked about unusual high school mascots. I was telling you a little bit about the fact that I grew up near New Berlin, Illinois. They are home of the pretzels, no joke. And uh, my mom and dad both graduated from New Berlin High School, so they are pretzel alums. To be clear, I was only there for a year. I went to kindergarten at New Berlin, uh, and then I uh, transitioned over to a Lutheran school uh, in that same town for eight years, a really small school called St. John's Lutheran. And when I say small, I mean really, really small, like 35 kids, first through eighth grade. Uh, No joke, it was a two-room schoolhouse. There was an upstairs and there was a downstairs, and a husband and wife taught all eight grades, and so Mrs. Crozy taught first through fourth grade, Mr. Crozy taught fifth through eighth grade. I mean, it really was an awesome experience. Like, I, I have so many good memories uh, of the years that I spent there at St. John's Lutheran. Like, when I think back to it, I mean, all the friends, the field trips, we had different sports teams, and so that was so much fun. And one of the things that I remember about Mrs. Crozy is, well, we, we had to learn, too, right, because it was a school, but... Uh, I specifically, I remember flashcards. Remember math flashcards? Maybe you still do done some flash uh, math flashcards if you're a young kid. But I can remember Mrs. Crozy working on those flashcards with us, and uh, you know, basically to help us remember, remember or memorize uh, those basic math facts. And so I can still picture her working through them. You know, helping each kid to get as fast as possible. Like the goal was to see how quickly you could make it through all of the flashcards. You want to know something? I was really good. Flashcards. Like, I probably one of the best St. John's had ever seen. Like, if they had an all-county team or an all-state team for math flashcards, I mean, there's a chance that I would, have, I would have represented there. And so when it came time for my kids to learn their math facts, let's just say they were pretty lucky uh, to have this guy around. But then something happened. My kids went to middle school and on to high school. And those basic math facts that I learned alongside of those math flashcards, well, let's just say it hasn't translated very well to stats and calculus and things like that. And so when they need help with those kinds of subjects today, they talk to Jenny, their mom, all right? She's best uh, equipped to help them or they help one another. And if you're asking, well, what do you do? What's your part? I pray for them. That's what I do. Like, and so when they need help, I'll put my hands on them and I'll, I'll pray for them. But there's a reason why you learn the basics, all right? There's a reason why students take driver's ed. Uh, there's a reason why young hunters go through something like gun safety. There's, there's a reason why you learn your math facts, because the basics are important. And my problem is I don't love math, all right? My goal was to get away from math as soon as possible, and so the basics only got me so far. My kids, on the other hand, they actually enjoy math, and not only did they master their math facts, but they've also used those math facts, and they've been help, very helpful to them in establishing a foundation that's helped them get through some of the math that they're, of course, learning today. The life lesson here is this, especially as everyday life for us, uh, as, as people, as followers of Jesus for sure, gets a little more and more complicated, a little more confusing, there's a basic life lesson here, and that is that, you know, as we think about the basics of our faith, you know, that's what I'll talk about today is the basics of our faith and how important it is to go back to the basics when you're trying to find your way through. I mean, think about just how in the last two years alone, how many times 
you, if you're like me, have found yourself confused or uh, distracted, disoriented by everything going on. Like you're not sure what you're supposed to think about this. You're not sure how to navigate these sort of circumstances of life. I mean, you know, maybe even wondering, asking yourself, like, what do I believe, you know, about anything anymore? Well, today I want to revisit some of the basics or the essentials of what we claim to believe as followers of Jesus Christ, and especially here at Genesis. And to do that, I want to look at two passages of Scripture with you that we looked at in our daily Bible reading plan this past week from the New Testament books of Colossians and Philippians. And so if you have a Bible, uh, turn there with me. Go to the New Testament, uh, and we're going to start in Colossians, actually, and then we'll back up in a few minutes and and take a a, a few minutes in one particular portion of Philippians. But again, if you're new here, we've we've been reading through the Bible this year uh, and teaching about teaching about some of the things that we're learning along the way here on Sundays, and we're calling this event Planted. And we worked our way through the Old Testament, and a good portion in the New Testament now, and so on Christmas Eve, we'll finish all of that up. But today, I want to start in Colossians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul writes to followers of Jesus that are living in the first city century of Colossae. And Paul was writing to the men, to the women, to the students there in this church to encourage them, but also to help them. Now, what did they need help with? There was a dangerous group of philosophers that had infiltrated the church with their unique teachings and worldview. Basically, their goal was to move Christianity away from faith in Jesus Christ alone and to align it with some of the other worldlier philosophies to the day. Add to it, because Philippi and Colossae were a part of the Roman Empire, allegiance to Rome and allegiance to Caesar was not just expected, but it was required. Like There was this ongoing pressure to put Rome first, to put Caesar first above anything else. Now, if you hear this and you think to yourself, well, nothing like that could ever happen today, think again. Like, think about how the turbulence of the last couple of years alone has resulted in this tidal wave of opinions and beliefs that have divided churches and Christians, from politics to masks and vaccines to questions about about race and, and how should the church navigate an important issue like this, to gender, to socialism versus capitalism, to tolerance and inclusion versus convictions and personal freedoms. Add to it, all of us, especially young people face this daily fire hose of mixed messages, especially from social media, about what's right and acceptable versus what's wrong and and closed-minded. And I don't know about you, but as a Christian, I feel this constant pressure to choose one side or the other. That either you're going to stand on this side of the aisle or you're going to stand on that side of the aisle. And I don't know how you see it, but there are so many occasions that if I look and there are just two sides to choose from, honestly, I've been pretty disappointed at times in both sides. In fact, I don't want to be forced into one side of the aisle because there's a lot of time where neither seems to be getting it right. And so what I keep asking And what I think that people in Colossae and places like Philippi were asking is, what about Jesus? What would Jesus have to say about this? Like if Jesus were living through me, like what would he do or what would he want from me in this particular situation? Interestingly, in places like Colossae and Philippi, they were caught in the middle of a similar firestorm. And that's a big part of the reason why the Apostle Paul jumped in to encourage them. He knew they were struggling, that they were confused, and to help them, he's going to take them back to the basics of their faith. 
and he begins in Colossians chapter 1. Let's look at a few of these verses together. Beginning in verse 15, the Apostle Paul writes this, The Son, that is Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities." All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The more I study these words, the more I'm convinced that Paul's words are of greater spiritual value than any of us could possibly imagine. And for starters, scholars believe that this particular section of scripture here in Colossians was actually based on a hymn. It was based on a a spiritual song that the early church would sing together in order to worship Jesus Christ as Savior. And so memorizing these words and then singing them together as a church family reminded them of what they believed. And not only that, but many also believe that Paul's description of Jesus here is among the most important verses of all of, or in all of Scripture because they teach us an incredibly important truth about Jesus, and it's this, that Jesus is the very embodiment of God. Now, I had to look that word up, all right, to make sure that I knew what it meant, this word embodiment. It's a big word. It's one that we don't use regularly But maybe that's why it's so fitting. Because it means that when we see Jesus, we see God. We get to see God. God in the flesh, fully God, nothing less than God himself. The writer of Hebrews, another book that we'll look at over the next week, affirms this. We don't have this on the screen, but he says this of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the disciple John says this of Jesus, and I like the words of Eugene Peterson, who's provided a kind of a modern-day paraphrase. It's a book called The Message that may you've seen before. And here's how he kind of interprets these words in John 1, 14 of Jesus. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one of a kind glory like father, like son, generous inside and out from start to finish. Bottom line, Jesus isn't just a reflection of God. He's not a spokesperson for God. He is the embodiment of God, the exact representation of God because he's God in the flesh. And look again what Paul says about him in verse 15, amongst many things, but the son Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, the word firstborn needs to be clarified because in our context, we, when we hear the word firstborn, we think of the first child born into a family. And when we, we read it here then, if we don't get it right, we might read these words and think of Jesus as the first person that God created, but that isn't an accurate understanding of what Paul's getting at, and it's not good theology either. Because in the Old Testament, all right, in the Hebrew context, the word firstborn was used to indicate someone that gets first rank 
or first honor. Like in Psalm 89, verse 27, the word firstborn was a, a code word to describe the Messiah, the Savior that was going to come. So when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, he is speaking to his title as God's promised Messiah and is letting us know that he is supreme over everything. And in verse 16, Paul speaks to the supremacy of Jesus by telling us of what he's done. It says, For in him, in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. False religions then and today will attempt to diminish Jesus' divine authority uh, or his divinity and his authority. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, teach that Jesus was created by God, but as a, a separate lesser God, and he is not a part of God's divine trinity. But here we find Paul explaining that Jesus is God in the flesh. You know, that he's the exact representation of God. And Paul makes it clear that Jesus that created everything that has or will ever exist. He continues, verse 17. He says that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul doesn't leave anything to the imagination here. As he declares the eternal nature of Jesus, meaning he has always existed. Basically, there has never been a time that Jesus wasn't around. Like he is, he is outside of time. Better yet, he, he created time. Now, we, we could spend the next few weeks just trying to unpack, you know, words like these, kind of the depth and beauty, really, of every single word that's used here in this hymn and still not completely understand it. And I'm certainly not qualified to lead us all through it, but, but let's not stop there, all right? Let's just, let's just keep piling on for the sake of what we want to accomplish today. I want to show you a similar passage of Scripture that's found in Philippians, a letter written to Christians living in and around the first city century of Philippi. So turn back a few pages in your Bible, if you would. Paul helped plant a church there in Philippi. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And Philippians 2, like Colossians 1, is also believed to be a hymn that the early church would have sung together as a way of worshiping Jesus. So let's pick it up in Philippians chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 5. I'll read it for you, but what I want you to do is just note the similarity from what we just read in Colossians 1 to uh, these words now as they speak about the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. Paul says this, verse 5, in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. We could probably just spend the rest of our time talking about that. So many applications there. But he continues, verse 6, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Scholar William Barclay says this passage is potentially the greatest and most moving passage of Scripture that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. And why? Because of what it reveals to us about Jesus. The links that the Apostle Paul is trying to go to to get us fixed on Jesus looking at Jesus, reminded of Jesus and what he has done. He says in verse 6 that Jesus, 
who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Paul is telling us that Jesus knew that he was equal to God, but he didn't consider that equality, again, something to be used to his own advantage. In the Greek, that phrase, used to his own advantage, is a word picture of a treasure that someone would would clutch onto with everything that they had, with little to no attempt of anyone prying it away from their fingers. My wife, Jenny, and I, we were engaged a long time ago, way back in the 1900s, and uh, in St. Louis, under the arch, home of the greatest baseball team of all time, the St. Louis Cardinals, that's not the point, Uh, but I remember um, when I picked up the wedding ring, or the engagement ring from the jeweler, and I was just so nervous about misplacing, about losing that ring, and so I remember I went directly to my insurance agent and had it added on to my insurance policy. And then I took it back to my apartment and I hid it in my dresser drawer because nobody would ever look there, right? And I, I kept it in there. And then a few days later when the day arrived, like I had this ring, but I didn't propose till later on in the day. And so I had it in my pocket, but I just kept checking it all day long. I think it was nerves, but I was also really nervous about misplacing this ring. I mean, it was an important treasure of sorts for me. For Jesus, the treasure was his status as the firstborn, the son of God. And just to be clear, like his, his status wasn't something that he earned or, or he had to work for. It's just who he is. But here's the part. Here's the part about Jesus that really, if we let it, should blow our minds. And it's this. Jesus had equality with God, but he chose not to hold on to it. Jesus had equality with God, but he chose not to hold on to it. Some translations say he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or or cling to, but apparently there was something else that he treasured. And what was that? Like, what is it that Jesus treasures so much, so much that he would go to great, incredible lengths? You. Me. Me. All of humanity. Like the very people that he created in his image and his likeness. I I want you to realize what the Apostle Paul is after is he wants us to understand how valuable and important these basics, a passage like this really is. Like, Can you understand why the early church sang this passage as a way of worshiping Jesus for all of his supremacy and for all of his glory? We talked about identity last week, and we talked about the fact, the basics, that Jesus is the only one that can give you your identity. Like, What he says about you is the most important thing about you. The, the person of Jesus this week, I, just, I want you to see how the basics matter, how they mattered then, and why they matter today, Paul continues in verse 7, he said that Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Jesus willingly set aside the, the privileges of heaven so that he could become human like you and me, but not just human. Paul says that Jesus made himself nothing, which can also be translated, and maybe in your Bible, depending on which one you're reading, that Jesus emptied himself. And how did he do this? Well, Paul tells us. He says he he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And the word taking is an important one in that Jesus did this willingly. Uh, Jesus did this confidently with, with purpose. It's like what men and women do 
when they volunteer to serve in something like the military. Again, they volunteer their time, their life to serve. First responders, when they rush into a burning building and put their own lives at risk, it's not something that's forced on them. Like they volunteer and even their family understand uh, understands that the cost of something like that. Servitude was not forced on Jesus. He chose it willingly. And Paul goes on to explain the significance of this in verse 8 when he says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He did. Jesus did. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Are you getting the picture here? You know, I mean, one of the great mysteries of our faith is that while Jesus is and was God, like he willingly emptied himself to become human. And why? Well, amongst all things, it's so that he could experience all of the hardships, all of the pain that you and I go through and face every single day. The stuff that we think about each and every day. Like, I mean, you might find this hard to imagine, but because Jesus became human, it means that he faced things like fear and frustration. Jesus would have faced that in his life. It means that Jesus is very familiar with the reality of, of depression and, and things like anxiety. It means that Jesus understands temptation and what it feels like to exist and operate in a world full of so many mixed and confusing messages. Jesus gets it. He understands these things. I'm reading a book right now. I haven't finished it yet, so I hope the second half is okay. But uh, uh, it's by a guy by the name of John Mark Comer. And uh, he's written this book. He's a pastor out in the Northwest. He's written this book called Live No Lies. And it's so appropriate to what we're talking about today as what he's really trying to emphasize is what we've all experienced, and especially over the past couple of years, just daily the messages that are flying in our face. And uh, from media to the people that we interact with to social media to your favorite YouTuber to the tweet you don't want to read that's just constantly overwhelming any of us. And, and again, it influences us. Whether we like it or not, it, it gets into our minds and it, it, it messes with us, sometimes positively, but more times than not, it's, it's probably influencing us in negative ways. And, and one of the things he points out very early in the book is that the evil one is behind it all. Like there are just evil people. There is an evil one who exists in this world and that he is, he is constantly throwing us these mixed messages and getting us questioning and thinking about all of these different things. And so what Comer concludes is that we have a choice. Like we can't control all of it, but you and I have this opportunity to control you know, what influences us. Like we, we can play a part in where we spend our time and where we allow our minds to go and where we're receiving our information from. And so we can control what comes in and out. He says, you know, if you, if you jump up in the morning and grab your phone and start scrolling through Twitter, like, like good luck. Good luck with that. Like you're allowing all of those influences to kind of be the first thoughts into your brain in the morning. But what he suggests is, but when we, we reach for God's word, like when God's word is our go-to, when we start asking ourselves, what does God's word have to say about this? You know, what, what, how do I see Jesus operating in a similar situation? Like what, what is God's truth for my life? What, what does it mean that my identity is found in him, that what he says about me is what's most important? Like when we choose God's word, like we're putting ourselves in a, a much better position to live and to operate and to not be controlled by the lives of Satan. Jesus had a choice. All right, he became like us, but thankfully, Jesus never gave in. I mean, even though he experienced the reality and the pain and the trials of this life, he never sinned. 
He had no sin in his life, and he left us with an example for how to live, but he also did it. He also did these things so that you and I might understand that he understands, that he knows your pain, that he knows the difficulties, he knows your fears, he knows your doubts, he doesn't uh, doubt your, your anxiety. He, he loves you like he has a plan for you. He has a plan for your life. He, he loves this church family. He's got a plan for our church family. And that's why the Apostle Paul can call him a servant, a servant who loves us. And his willingness to serve led him all the way to the cross where he died and was eventually resurrected so that you and I could have the opportunity to be made right with God. I love how Warren Wearsby explains this mystery of our faith. He, he says this specifically about these words of Paul. He says, in these verses, Paul traces the steps of the humiliation of Christ. First, he, that Jesus emptied himself by laying aside the independent use of his own attributes of God. Secondly, that Jesus permanently became a human in a sinless physical body. Three, he used that body to become a servant. And number four, he took that body body to the cross, and I love these two words, he willingly died, that Jesus willingly died for us and in our place so that through faith in him, we could be redeemed, uh, find life, and cling to the hope that comes from that. If you're a follower of Jesus, like this is the story of our faith, like this is the hope that we have, and because it's our story, well, we should celebrate Jesus and worship Jesus with every part of our lives, with every breath that we have, and with every gift we've been given. Paul finishes by telling us how Jesus was rewarded for his obedience in verse 9. He says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Genesis, we're living in a strange world, a confusing world, each and every day. And people around us, you've got people around you in your life that are lost. There are people around you that are desperately grabbing for anything that might provide some sense of security and satisfactions. We, we find ourselves in a culture that doesn't know what to believe about anything anymore. And we live in a country that calls itself united, but is becoming more and more divided each day. Here's the good news for us as followers of Jesus. Our hope isn't in any of these external things. It's not in an elected official it's not in money, it's not in a relationship, it's or a promotion. Our hope isn't even in how long our bodies will hopefully or possibly last on this earth. Our follower, our, our, excuse me, as followers of Jesus, our hope is in the supremacy, the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ as our God, as our Savior and, and King. And if you, if you're a follower of Jesus, all right, you might be thinking to yourself, you know what, that's a great reminder, but I've heard these things before. I hope other people around me are paying attention. This message is for all of us. Like, we all need these reminders. We need these basics. None of us can afford to become so familiar with these truths or these basics that we shrug them off and say, yeah, I already know that. Because it doesn't matter who you are. If you're not careful, it's far too easy for any of us to get distracted away from the basics of our faith and in the process become so disoriented in our faithfulness to God. If we're not careful we can quickly turn to things like politics and other ideologies to find our hope. 
All right, if I'm not careful, I can go looking for satisfaction and fulfillment in other things that were never intended to do for me what only Jesus was ever intended to do. Acknowledging the basics of our faith is important, but it's also important that we revisit these truths over and over again, and every time we visit them or revisit them, we should pray and ask the Holy Spirit to overwhelm us with the goodness and the grace of God's love in our lives through his son Jesus and in that power that we would walk out of doors like these in just a few moments and go live our lives for others to see and share the good news of Jesus as much as we can with the people that he's put in front of us. There's a family here at Genesis a few weeks ago that experienced a pretty significant loss in their family of a sweet lady named Nancy that was known for being a loving and kind mother, wife, uh, mother-in-law, grandmother. You know stories like this one. Nancy had been suffering with cancer for the past few years. And in the recent months, she and her family knew that as her condition worsened, that her time here on this earth was quickly coming to an end. But just a few hours uh, before she died, uh, she rallied her strength and was insistent that her daughter help her raise her arms up in the air. And of course, her daughter was happy to do this for her mother and to uh, help meet this simple request, but she couldn't help but ask her mom why. And in the presence of her husband, her daughter, her son-in-law, Nancy simply said, I want to raise my arms to Jesus one more time here on this earth, the Lord of heaven and earth. And a few hours after raising her arms in worship to Jesus, she died peacefully. And uh, her son-in-law said this. He said, you know, she died in her sleep on a Monday, but woke up on Tuesday where she always wanted to be the other side of eternity in heaven with her arms raised to Jesus. Nancy's faith in Jesus is a reminder to us of why it's so critical that we see and understand and believe Jesus for who he is. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I want to challenge you to join me in asking the Holy Spirit to uh, ignite or maybe reignite, you know, that kind of faith uh, in your heart, uh, in, in our church, so that we can make the name of Jesus great wherever we go. And if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, maybe you're new to all this, maybe you've got questions you've been asking, maybe you'd say, you know what, I'm curious, I'm a seeker, I don't, I don't know what I believe about anything right now, I don't even know how I landed here today. We just want you to know that we believe that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be the one and only Son of God, who is eternal, that created everything and everywhere, and he created you, and he died on the cross for you to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin, and he offers his forgiveness, and not only his forgiveness, but he offers his life. There's something powerful about his life. There's something great and awesome and amazing about living your life for Jesus each day, of knowing that he is your Savior and he is your Lord, and he offers himself to you. He offers himself to you today. And if that's something that you're ready to do, we'd invite you to reach out to him. We'd invite you to take your next step with him. You can pray if you're ready to do something like that. If you've got questions, I'm going to be down front afterwards. We'll have others here. We can talk to you this morning. We'd love to have a conversation with you. Get coffee. Pray with you about what it means to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Will you pray with me? 
Father in heaven, we thank you for these wonderful, powerful reminders today of who you are, your great love, your son Jesus, who he is, and what he proclaims with his life. Ignite a fire in each of us, Lord. Take us back to these truths today and establish or reestablish a foundation that we can stand on that will change and influence everything for each of us. Have your way in our church, Lord. We, we want to celebrate and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ so that others may know him and live for him and find hope in him in this world. Have your way. Have your way in each of our lives. We praise you today. We praise Jesus today. And it's in your name we pray these things. Amen.